0: Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea during the last watch of the night the lord <coughs> excuse me during the last watch of the night the lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the egyptian army and threw it into confusion he made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving And the Egyptians said, "'Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt.' Then the Lord said to Moses, "'Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen.' Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place." The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left, That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servant. Chapter 15, then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider, He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear, and they will tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance." The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her her, with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. Would you pray with me? Father, as the Israelites desperately needed rescue, we desperately need Christ. And we desperately need your word. Would you minister to us now through your word and through God when your' servant? Amen.
1: Good morning. Good morning. There we go. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be with you this morning. And uh, preach the word of the Lord to you. What a privilege it is to be here. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Godwin. I'm one of the pastors here at South Shore Baptist Church. Today marks 15 years and one week after the tragedy of 9-11. And let's face it, our country is not the same again. After that day, a lot of things have changed in our country. Uh, TSA was started, which is, you know, fairly annoying for most of us. Immigration laws are a lot tighter uh, with the Homeland Security Act, and I'm going to read this. This is convoluted. The Enhanced Border Security and Visa Entry Reform Act of 2002. Uh, The Patriot Act ushered a a new era of domestic spying. uh, Excuse me, tourism numbers have dropped. So a lot of things in our country have changed, but really the American psyche in particular has been impacted by 9-11. We are a different people. Uh, A fairly famous psychologist in our country said this. He said, despite the technological advantages and relative safety today, there's also greater fear in our country. Beneath everything, there's a profound malaise about life and uncertainty about the future. Because now we've opened up a new dimension, a new dimension that reverses the natural sequence of how things have always been. Americans have changed since 9-11. Now, I'm not trying to depress you, but I want you to see how big, significant events in our lives radically, powerfully, profoundly impact us and, and reshape us. And change us. Sometimes those events are good and so we're grateful for them. You know, maybe we, we think back to our wedding day or, or when we graduated from college or maybe a, a great vacation we took with some dear friends. And, and those are some events we, we think back and, and we're, we, we look back fondly on those things. They're a breath of fresh air. But sometimes those events, just like 9-11, become scabbed over Wounds. They hurt us. When we think about them, it's not easy. But all of these events, whether they're good events or bad events, we can rest assured that they indeed have changed us for the good and sometimes for the bad. In our story in Exodus, the nation of Israel was about to go through a world altering, mind numbing event. And nothing would be the same again for Israel, for themselves, for their relationship with God, but also for how they viewed life. Everything would change. And what was this event? It was, of course, the Exodus event. Now, that's been taking place for a while now because, of course, they've left Egypt. They've exited out of Egypt. But Egypt hasn't totally left them, right? Because Egypt is right on the heels of Israel Israel has their backs to the sea, and they're facing this vast, powerful Egyptian army. And the only thing that's keeping this army from them is a, is a cloud of fire. So what's going to happen next? Well, God has promised to deliver them. The question is, how is he going to do that? Now, here's what this passage, I believe, showcases. It showcases what happens when God shows up and spectacularly does something to save his people. That's what this passage shows us. What does that look like? How does that change God's people? There's two movements in this sermon. The first movement is uh, the end of chapter 14. And what we see there is a full salvation, a full salvation. And then we, as we look into chapter 15, what we see is a new, joyful people. So let's first look at a full salvation, the end of chapter 14. You know, the scene starts with Moses, of course, doing what God commanded him to do, which is stretch out his hands, and then, of course, things start to happen as he stretches out his hands. Now, a little background first. There's three watches of the night in in ancient times. The first watch was between 6 and 10 p.m., second watch, 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., and then lastly, 2 a.m. and 6 p.m. So three watches. Now you'll notice in verse 24 something happens during the last watch of the night. We're going to get there. But here's what I want to point out. It's likely that it was during the first watch sometime between 6 and 10 p.m. That's when God used these eastern winds to kind of build up these walls of water. Now I want you to picture yourself standing there at the precipice of the sea. But you're not looking at the sea. You're facing the army. That's what you're afraid of right now, the vast Egyptian army. And the only thing that's between you and this army, again, is this cloud, which represents the presence of God. And all of a sudden, you start to hear something. All of a sudden, you start to hear the sound of wind building and building and swirling and coming out of the east And and the sound, you have to imagine, it gets louder and louder and louder. And then you see the top of the water begin to move. And now the sound you hear isn't just the the rushing wind, but it's the rushing water. And it's almost like you can see the very hands of God moving the water and slowly shaping them into these majestic walls, just like a kid on the beach shapes little sandcastles with Water running through them from the ocean. It was that easy for God. For you and I, this is, of course, spectacular. Now, this doesn't just take a few seconds like maybe we think. This parting of the waters probably lasted several minutes, maybe even several hours. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's, it's, it's because of this. Two million people walking across this, this particular um, body of water in just one night probably meant there were several miles between the seawalls, okay? Several miles between the seawalls. So you're probably standing there watching this parting, this dividing, maybe for hours. So you got two million people's jaws on the floor. The manifest power of God for two hours. You're not looking at the army. You're looking at the water far more dramatic, far more, of course, timely than any plague back in Egypt. But God was just getting started, right? So Israel starts, of course, to move on this dry ground with these gigantic walls of water on each side. Imagine your first steps onto dry ground. Imagine those steps, taking your family, pushing your, your, your carts you know, leading your, your, your children, they're scared and you're trying to calm them down, trying to reassure your kids. Everything that is dear to you, you are moving onto this dry land. Adrenaline is pumping, right? Because this is nuts. So it was an act of faith. It was an act of faith to, to take your first step onto the dry ground, to Take advantage of the salvation that God had offered. It was an act of faith, and the Israelites took that step of faith. And just when you think things couldn't get any harder or weirder for Israel, the Egyptians begin to pursue them on this dry land. Look at verse 23. Now, I'd imagine the Israelites in the back felt like they got a pretty raw deal. People started running, right? I mean, they saw the Egyptians coming. Well, but God yet again intervened. What does he do? He, he looks down and he throws the army into confusion, probably causing them to panic. Maybe they look around and they, they see these huge waters and reality starts to sink in. What in the world are we doing here? God does something else. He makes the wheels come off the chariots. When my tennis game... Goes from good to bad in just a few seconds. I often turn to my tennis partner and I say, I'm sorry, the wheels are falling off the bus. Well, at this point in time, the wheels were falling off the chariots, right? Literally, metaphorically, for this nation, things were coming undone to the point where they totally give up. Look at verse 25, the end of verse 25. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. They're terrified. And they recognize that God was at work. Now, I love the timing of the next thing that happens in our story. The the people of Israel are now on the other side, and and, and they're looking back in verse 27. Moses stretches out his hand over the sea at daybreak. So it was a dark and scary night as Israel was moving across dry ground and taking their families and, and taking themselves across dry grounds, walking all night between walls of water, Egyptians giving chase. But at daybreak, when the light of day was starting to peek in, that's when God made his final and decisive move against Egypt. This battle had started back in Exodus chapter 1, and now he was going to finish it. You know, it's kind of like that moment during the Battle of Helm's Deep, the Lord of the Rings. You've watched uh, the movie The Two Towers. You saw this depicted, or you've read the book. The bad guys were winning. The good guys were losing. All hope seemed to be lost. And then Gandalf comes in with this army to the rescue. At the break of dawn on the fifth day of the battle, just like he said he would, a light light pops in over the crest and you see Gandalf and you see this army and they stream down right into the battle and the good guys win. And so at the break of dawn on this particular night in the ancient world, God shows up and he wins. He wins. Just like he said he would. Now, the theological lesson of this scene is given to us in verses 29 and 30. Let me read those verses for you. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Let me just say a couple things here. First of all, the big lesson here is that the Lord saves. The Lord saves. God saves us completely. God saves us totally. And notice the emphasis of God's action here. Look at verse 21. Moses stretches out his hand, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind. Verse 24 and 25. During the last uh, watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar. Uh, and a fire and cloud and at the Egyptian army, and threw it into confusion, the Lord made the wheels of their chariots come off verse twenty five The Lord is fighting for them against egypt verse twenty seven uh, the last part of this the Lord swept them the Egyptians into the sea. This whole thing was accomplished by God. What an incredible picture of salvation this Uh, Crossing of the Red Sea is for us. A picture that is totally different than any other religious system has to offer. In every other religion, you're trying to get across to the other side. You're trying to find God. You're trying to get to the promised land, so to speak. But it's all up to you. You've got to do it. You've got to muster up something in yourself to get across. Maybe it's give alms to the poor or... Pray five times a day or make a pilgrimage. But with Christianity, here's the, here's the difference. God does the work. God does the work. You embrace it. You open your life up to him. You have faith and you got you to take that step. But God has cleared the path for you. Are you a Christian? Have you crossed over the Red Sea? If your answer is, I'm trying. If your answer is, I, I think I'm good enough. And I want you to understand something. You don't earn the right to cross the Red Sea. You never will. I never will. You simply receive the gift and by faith you walk across. Have you done that yet? Second lesson we see here is not only that the Lord saves, but we see the manner, the way in which the Lord saves God saves us completely through judging his enemies thoroughly. Look at verse 29. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Contrast that now. Contrast that now with the end of verse 30. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Let's get back into the scene here. You're an Israelite and you've walked all night and your eyes are bloodshot and everybody's tired and your kids are crying because they haven't slept all night. You're exhausted, but there's kind of leftover adrenaline that's keeping you awake, right? And there you are on the other side. And what do you see as you come out the other side? As you turn around and you're not you're not going towards a promised land. You turn around, you face the waters. What do you see? You see dead bodies. You see, corpses of your enemies, and they're done. They're defeated. God has destroyed them. In the place that you had once stood, in the place that your children had once walked freely and safely, now there is water and dead bodies. And and you were this close to being engulfed by those waters. But God withheld his judgment on Israel, not because they were good enough, but because he was merciful, and God put his judgment on his enemy, the Egyptians. Today we are standing together on the opposite edge of the sea. If you're a brother, a sister, if you are a friend of Jesus, if you've received Christ with repentance and and faith... We're standing together on the opposite edge of the sea, and and, and, and as, as we reflect upon walking on dry ground safely, as we look across those waters, we don't just see dead corpses of an army. We see a cross, and we see one dead body, and that's Jesus. In our place, Jesus is there bearing the wrath that we deserve. Becoming God's enemy for a time. Someone had to bear judgment. In the Old Testament, it was the Egyptians for the sake of Israel. In the New Testament, it's Jesus for the sake of the nations. For Israel, this event shook their worlds. You've got to imagine, right? I mean, it shook their worlds, it gave them this full salvation. Nothing would be the same again. Well, for us today as well, it's, it's the cross and it's the resurrection. That's what shakes our worlds and gives us a full salvation and redefines us as a people. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten, then nailed to a cross of wood. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. He took the blame. He bore the wrath. So we stand forgiven at the cross. Amen. First thing we see is a new or a full salvation. The second thing we see in this passage is a new people. A new people. Look at verses 31, and then we're going to go into chapter 15. Let me read just the last verse here of verse 31, and When the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servants. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. So as they crossed over the Red Sea, did they still carry the scars of their former Egyptian slave life? Literal scars because they were slaves? Of course they did. Do they remember the great fear they had every single day for 400 years under the harsh rule of Pharaoh? Absolutely. It's hard to forget that. But There's something else going on here, right? There's something else in their hearts, a new kind of fear and a new kind of joy. So let's consider this new kind of fear first. Earlier uh, in this chapter, in chapter 14, they feared Pharaoh and his forces. Look at verse ten. Look at verse ten. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. So they were afraid, of course, naturally at this Egyptian army. They feared what Pharaoh and his army would do to them, bring them back to Egypt and enslave them. But this fear, this fear of God that we read at the end of chapter fourteen was something different. It was a greater fear. A more important fear. On on both of these occasions, they were aware of their own significance as a people before a greater power. Egypt, earlier in chapter 14, God, the end of chapter 14. But now it was not a power that was threatening to destroy them, like earlier in chapter 14. Now it had been the hand of God himself stretching out to deliver them. That's what they were, yeah, afraid of. This reminds me when Jesus, uh, when Jesus calmed the storm. Remember that? Fast forward a few centuries, and uh, Jesus is in a boat with his disciples, and um, all is not well. Jesus is taking a nap, and there's a huge storm, and his disciples are flipping out. And what happens next? Well, disciples wake up, Jesus, Jesus, there's a storm. Do something, right? And Jesus very calmly says a few words, and like that, The storm is silenced. Now how do you think the disciples responded? Yay, the storm is done. We're, We're safe. We're safe. We're alive. But wait a second, who is this guy? Who is this who is this guy that he would have the kind of authority to silence the storms with a word? You've got to imagine the Israelites as they're standing there on the precipice of the Promised Land as they turn back and see the Red Sea with corpses. They're asking a question too. Who is this God that can wield this kind of power to control the winds and the seas on our behalf? The Israelites no longer feared Egypt, but yeah, they feared God. Yeah, the disciples, they, they no longer feared the storms. They fear Jesus. When we think about Jesus, how God saved us through the cross and resurrection, it's easy to feel relief. Relief that the power of your old life has been broken, relief that you have eternal life and you're walking into the promised land. But do we also fear God at the cross and resurrection? Do we recognize that God wields power as he puts his son into the grave on our behalf and as he raises him up out of the grave on our behalf? That is power. And we ought to fear God for it. I'm not talking about a slavish kind of fear, like the kind of fear that you may experience from a harsh boss or uh, an austere judge in your life. This is the kind of fear that we feel from a good and loving father. It's the kind of fear that we actually welcome. As we travel through our lives, we experience all kinds of fears. And it impacts what we say and what we do. We fear, of course, what people think of us. We fear being alone. We fear rejection. We fear sickness. We fear death. We fear the brokenness of this world and what it could potentially do to our children. We have all kinds of fears. Some of you may have walked into this sanctuary this morning and you are carrying fears. That's why you're here. I don't want to minimize your fears, but instead I want to maximize another fear. When you encounter the God who put his son on a cross and raised his son from the grave, you are introduced to a new fear. A greater fear, a fear that overshadows all other kinds of fears. It's a kind of fear that Israel had as they turned around and they looked at what God had done. And it's this fear that orients our lives and captures our attention and reshapes us and reorders our lives. When your life is reordered with this fear of God and other fears start to diminish, you become Exactly what God wants you to become—a child of God, a child of God living under the loving and fatherly authority of the King. How do we cultivate the fear of God in our lives? Let me give you just three quick applications. Here's the first one. I've already said it. You got to look at the shoreline. You got to turn around and get your head in towards the Promised Land. It's great, but look around and what do you see? You see the cross. Consider the cross and the resurrection, the empty tomb, as not only demonstrations of God's love, but demonstrations of God's power. That's the first way that you can cultivate the fear of God in your life. Here's the second way. Uh, meditate on the psalms that highlight God's power. There's a lot of wonderful psalms in the Bible that you can go to and memorize and, and meditate on, and, and that, can, that can get you there too. Here's the third, uh, third very practical option. It's one of my favorite books. I've read this book two, maybe three times. It's called When People Are Big and God Is Small. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here would say you struggle to fear people more than you fear God? How many of you would say I struggle with that? Okay, those of you that haven't raised your hand, it's because you fear people more than you fear God. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm not really kidding. <laughs> we all struggle to fear people more than we fear God, right? Well, this is a, a wonderful book. It's by Ed Welch, who is a uh, biblical counselor. Uh, here's the, uh, the subtitle, Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. So I recommend this to you. It's probably 12 bucks. If you can't afford it, come talk to me. I'll buy you a copy. Great book. Um Okay, so the first thing we see here is fear, the fear of God. But that's not the only thing that, of course, changed in God's people. Notice in chapter 15 what they're doing. They're singing. They're celebrating. They're they're joyful. They're dancing. They got their tambourines out. This is an exuberant people. You think they sang and danced celebration songs back in Egypt? Absolutely not. They were singing laments back in Egypt. They were crying out to God because of the harsh oppression back in Egypt. But now, everything has changed. Everything has changed. So Moses pens this song of celebration that gives praise to God. Now, this is the very first song that's ever uh, put together in the Bible, written in the Bible. And songs are great because, of course, they help us to remember. The Star-Spangled Banner helps us to remember something very important about our country. Songs are great because they uh, help us celebrate. They give voice to hopefully what's in our hearts. So yesterday I was singing, you know, the University of Michigan fight song as they as they took care of Colorado. Hail to the victors. Songs are also portable theology, right? You can take these songs anywhere. You can sing songs in the car with your kids. You can sing at church, of course. You can sing wherever you go. Portable theology. Uh, We can analyze the Song of Moses stanza by stanza, and and that would, of course, take forever. But just for the remainder of our time, I want to quickly point out how this song helps this people joyfully celebrate God's mighty salvation. Here's what I want you to see, just, just in a nutshell. Here it is. The Song of Moses helped Israel... Look back with gratitude and look forward with confidence. The Song of Moses helped Israel look back with gratitude and look forward with confidence. Look at the first 12 verses. They're looking back. They focus on how God tangibly saved Israel from Egypt. The horse and its rider hurled into the sea. The the Lord is a warrior. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he hurled into the sea. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. And then verse 12, you stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. And so they're looking back with gratitude and praise. But notice what happens after that. Immediately, verse 13, there's a shift. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. And then he starts talking about the nations that that are going to need to be overthrown as they move into the promised land. There's three nations there, and they're all shaking with fear. Look at verse 16. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by. Then look at how the song ends in verse 17. You will bring them, he's talking about Israel, you will bring Israel in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. So the song concludes by saying, God's going to get us home. God's going to get us home and God's going to get us to the place where we can dwell with him forever and ever. It's not only looking back with gratitude, but it's looking forward with great confidence in what God is going to accomplish in their lives. Listen, this this nation isn't about to get into the promised land quickly. They're not about to get that promised land handed to them. Some rough waters ahead. They're going to need some confidence to get into this land. And this song of Moses helps them to get into the right mindsets. The God who's already done so much for you, Israel, will surely not desert you. The God who has done so much for you, Israel, will surely not prove powerless when you move into this land. Oh, this is so true for us as well. So true for us as well. If you want the kind of joy that will help you persevere in life, then you've got to look back with gratitude at the cross and the resurrection and, and then look forward at your lives with hope and confidence. Paul says something about this in Romans chapter 8. Listen to this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This This is some of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. What's Paul saying? This is what Paul's saying. Do you remember, church, what he gave you in Christ? Do you remember your personal exodus journey that happened because of Christ? If he could give you Jesus, of course he will give you everything else you need to get through this week. That's what Paul's saying. So you can trust him. If he slaughtered his beloved son for you, he will do everything necessary to make sure you get into the promised land. So we can trust him. We can trust him. We got a ways to go, church, right? We haven't reached the promised land. We need lots and lots of moments of looking back and looking forward. And so we need some good songs to sing along the way. Songs that help us look back at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Songs that help us to look at our lives with confidence that God will come through. Just like this song. We need some good, theologically rich, emotionally engaging songs to sing. That's why we're here every week singing songs. You may be wondering, hey, let's just get to the sermon. I don't want to sing any songs. You may not like to sing. We need to sing. We need to celebrate. We need to remember and we need to look forward as well through our singing. It's a wonderful gift that God has given us. Maybe you feel like you can't sing. You don't have a voice to sing. That's okay. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Just don't do it next to me. That's all I'm asking Concern yourself with looking back at Jesus and looking forward with hope. So pick up some worship CDs maybe if you can't play an instrument or pick up your guitar if you can play guitar. Sing some songs at home. Teach your kids to sing and maybe they'll sing to you one day when you need encouragement. My kids have been singing to me in the last few weeks songs of encouragement. Let's turn finally to Revelation chapter 15. I want to show you one more quick thing, and we'll close. Revelation 15. At the end of time, when God finally and fully defeats every enemy, and there's no more enemies to fight, there will be a song to sing. Revelation 15. Starting in verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, 7-7 angels with seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's the song of Moses that we will one day sing together. One day we will sing this song, which has become the song of the Lamb. And that's because Jesus died as the Passover Lamb to make this exodus possible, to make this crossing possible. So at the end of time, when we look upon the sea after God has finished his full, complete salvation work, as we look at the sea, we will look back, and yes, we'll see the cross. We will see the bloodied body of Jesus. But then as we look to our left and right, we're not going to only see our local church congregation and our family and friends. We're going to see the nations gathered to sing the song of Moses. That's what makes this song even better. The nations will be warming up their voices. The nations will be getting ready to sing the song of the slain lamb.